Support for Starting Small comes from Human Scale, the leading designer and manufacturer of high-performance ergonomic products that help create a healthier work life. All of the products from chairs to standing desk and more are comfortable, easy to use, and sustainable, and great for either the office or the work from home environment. With an increase in shifting workplaces, comfort can be especially hard to find. As I run the podcast, I'm in front of my desk for hours a day, from scheduling, researching, interviewing, and more. Human Scale allows me to remain productive without the consequence of body stress to follow. Make sure to check out Human Scale at humanscale.com and use code STARTINGSMALL at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's code STARTINGSMALL at humanscale.com and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Hallett, co-founder of Ultra Running, one of the top manufacturers of road and trail running shoes. Jeremy's aunt and uncle owned a running shoe store. Jeremy's cousin began to alter running shoes in the back of the store, taking customers' existing running shoes and altering it to fit their stride. Realizing the demand for these shoes, they took the common modification of reducing the heel and created their own running shoe, which ultimately became Ultra Running. Finding massive success and revenue growth with Ultra Running, they eventually sold it to Icon Health and Fitness in 2011, and in 2018, the VF Corporation completed the acquisition of Ultra. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Jeremy Hollett of Ultra Running. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you, Cameron. Yeah, so I would like to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up in an average home, in an average city, in an average state. I grew up in Utah. Okay. Um, Family of seven, so I've got four siblings. Um, Both my parents were around. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, My dad worked as a computer engineer, um, more on the electronics side of things than on like the programming stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, he taught me how to work with my hands and get things done. I built my first computer when I was 13, um, back in the days of windows 3.1. Okay. So, <laughs> um, with a three, I think we, it was a 386 Pentium chip. Um, so that wow. thing did, could fly. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and yeah, I just grew up in that age of the early internet and, and, um, just, trying to figure things out and figure out how things work and and had parents that were were around taught me good principles taught me how to work hard um i always had chores growing up we had a garden uh, worked on cars with my dad um i remember replacing an old engine out of our minivan mm. um, in our garage um he always had a workbench out there we i learned how to use a soldering iron at a very early age wow and then, so I always thought I'd go into some type of engineering or something like that. Yeah. And so um, at the age of 19, I, I went and served a, a mission for my church, spent two years in St. Louis, Missouri, and came home and really didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do. I thought about a lot about teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to pursue a te- kind of teaching, um, started pursuing a history degree. Um, but at the time I got tied into financial advising okay mostly on early on on an mlm front (laughs) oh wow some multi-level financial advisor company i don't recommend yeah totally that route (laughs) at all um 
but somehow I got conned into it and suckered in. And so that got me into it. That got me into my tests. I took my series six and 63. Um, so I got licensed with that and then wasn't sure that's really what I wanted to do and started my family early. I got married when I was 21, um, had my first kid when I was 22 and had to figure out something to some way to provide. And so I kind of bounced around different degrees, trying to figure out what I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately just settled on having an associate's degree and, and decided that college wasn't a good idea. So I, I dropped out of the rest of school and worked a couple of different odd jobs. Um, I sold vacuum cleaners for a time. I sold copy machines. Okay. Um, I think my favorite job was I worked customer service for the Utah state website. Um, so I got to kind of see the inner workings of programming and, hmm. and that really interested me in web design, web development, computer programming, that type of stuff. And so I started to pursue that. And so I learned WordPress, um, taught myself how to do some basic CSS and HTML programming. Mm-hmm. I've built several websites since then. Um, I can certainly use any WYSIWYG editor as good as anybody. Um, and then I can go in and play with some of the code when needed. And so that really interested me. So I pursued con- computer programming, but at the time this was still early 2000s, right? Like yeah. there wasn't a lot of web development courses. For so sure. I was learning C sharp and C plus plus, and I didn't want to be like a, I didn't want to be a programmer per se, right? Like I yeah. didn't want to write computer programs. I wanted to be a, be kind of a front end developer. And so I dropped out of that and stopped pursuing that. And then, and then stuck with the financial thing. So then I went and worked for Fidelity for a few years, um, got my series seven to be able to trade stocks and do some of that stuff. And then um, I got recruited away by, by an agent, by a financial agency here in town. Um, so I got my 65 and, and became a registered investment advisor. Or I guess that would be my 66. I don't remember now. That was, that was like three lifetimes ago. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, which, which kind of sucks because I'm probably accountable for what I learned then. And I don't remember a lot of it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully I don't break any laws and go Martha Stewart. So, um, but, but while I, so while I was at the, while I was at the firm, I really, fell in love with marketing because I was marketing my own brand. I was marketing my own business and I was trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this? And, and I was running into roadblocks constantly because of regulations. And so I couldn't, I couldn't create my own email campaigns because I needed every word that I said passed by compliance. Mm. I need, like, I couldn't do much to our website. Our website was copy and paste basically from the, from the parent company. And I was kind of the resident IT guy within our office. Uh, so that all fell on me. And, and there wasn't a lot I could do. Like my hands were really tied because of compliance and regulatory. And so I was like, I just, but I had this, this desire to go into marketing and kind of pursue that. And, and so I actually started a marketing agency on the side, um, doing some social media marketing stuff. This was in the early days of Facebook okay. back when, you're too young to know this, but some of the <laughs> listeners might, especially if they were in marketing at the time, might remember FBMLA, um, which was the Facebook markup language. Okay. Um, and and so it was kind of Facebook's own twist on HTML where you could go in and you could 
mark up and build your own custom landing pages on Facebook. Um, Interesting. So you could, yeah, so you could build out corp. So, so now you go and you get a page and it's really cookie cutter, right? Like it's, you got your header, your name, your click here, right? But yeah. you could build full on landing pages for your business page on Facebook. Um, so, so that was, yeah, I don't think that's a thing anymore. I haven't played in that for. Yeah. So is, is that where you stored your marketing agency's landing page? So was that like considered your website then at the time? Well, so you still have like you'd still have your website, right? Like I'm a huge advocate for your website is your hub, right? Like, yeah. Um, and Facebook, like I said, right? Like Facebook's changed it. Facebook owns Facebook, right? So yeah. you don't own that. Um, you can at least own your website as much as the web is gonna still be there, right? For but, sure. But you own it a lot more than you own anything on any of these other platforms. Whether you build a if you build a LinkedIn company page or a personal page, if you build a Twitter following, an Instagram following, Facebook following, all of this stuff, right? Like, like these are great tools, but at the end of the day, if any of these businesses go, that whole audience goes crumbling down. Yeah. Like if you're an Instagram influencer today, I hope that you're pretty well diversified. Yes, I don't foresee Instagram going anywhere, but they change their algorithm all the time. Yeah, for and sure. And so you're odd. Your audience activity is going to change all the time and you don't own that. You don't control that. But if you keep a blog, you own that, you own that content. That's yours. That sits on a server that you pay for exactly that you keep connection with, right? Your email database, you own that. And so, so we always preach like have like build your email audience, right? Like build your, build your website as your hub. And, and so like, so as I'm building this, I partnered up with a guy that did some video stuff and we were like, okay, we're going to build this little agency. And so I'm working as a financial advisor. I'm trying to build this agency at the time. And then July of 2009, everything changes. My whole world changes. Oh man. Um, I was, so I was born in 1980. So in 2009, I was going to turn 29 in November. Mm-hmm. And I was feeling out of shape and overweight. And I ran back. I was a runner back in high school. And my, my aunt and uncle own a running store here in Utah. They've owned it for now for probably 35 years. Okay. Uh, my cousin grew up working there. He, he started working in the store when he was nine. Wow. I think he got left alone for the first time when he was like 11. <laughs> this little redheaded, scrawny runner kid managing this store by himself. <laughs> kind of picture that as an 11 year old right like, yeah <laughs> but he was a d2 all-american and his little sister actually just um what placed top seven at um nationals oh wow this this last week in cross country amazing so, yeah so she's now an all-american d1 all-american um running for weber state but um so this family's got a really strong pedigree dad, dad won 1984 St. George marathon. Like, so they know what they're doing. Right. So, so I'm getting back into running and I'm trying to run and I keep having knee pain and I'm running up against these hurdles and, and it just isn't working for me. And even running trails and stuff. And I just couldn't figure it out. So I go to my cousin, I'm like, Hey dude, like I need some new shoes. I need something. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, as a matter of fact, (laughs) we've been cutting up these shoes and we call, we call them zeroed out. Um, which ultimately we changed the, we kind of termed, coined the term zero drop um, from that. But what he was doing was he was hacking up running shoes where he would cut out the elevated heel 
So it was the same height off the ground, heel to forefoot. Mm-hmm. And so he goes over the biomechanics and the reasoning for this, landing underneath a bent knee, like not heel striking, not, not hitting straight legged and being able to run more efficiently. I said, yeah, that's kind of interesting. He's like, well, why don't you give it a try? I said, all right, I'll take a couple, I'll take a pair of shoes. He's like, no, let's go right now. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> let's go for a run. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing else to do. Let's go for a run. Um, so I threw a pair on. He threw me some, some running clothes. We, we took off on the trail by his house. And it was a completely different experience for me running. It was smoother. I didn't have the knee pain. Like, obviously, I was way out of shape still. But, mm-hmm. but I didn't have the pains that I was experiencing before. And I, and I felt different. And so we get halfway out on the run. And I'm like, he's like, how does it feel? I was like, dude, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, you look, you look pretty good. But now I want to compare and contrast. I said, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's like, here, let's trade shoes. And he wore a traditional elevated heel shoe. And I was like, no way, dude. I'm not giving these up. And he's like, come on, let's just switch shoes. So we switched shoes and then we run back. And and I know it was completely noticeable difference. Wow. And like knee pain was there and he's watching me run. He's like, yeah, dude, you got terrible form. It's <laughs> like, yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And And so like... So we get back to his house and we could talk about it and kind of dive in a little bit more. And I was like, well, what are you doing with it? And he's like, oh, people come in they, to the running store, they buy a pair of shoes. And then we just send him over to this cobbler and he helps them get them zeroed out. So well, that's kind of cool. What's your long-term play? Well, let's we'll just kind of do the same thing. We might keep like a size run of these modified shoes in the running store so that people can do it. Like we were, like he was hacking up shoes from every other shoe company, right? Like, yeah, that's what I was about to say. So he was taking existing models. Like, so if someone came in and they wanted a Nike shoe, just like remodified, that's what he would do? Yeah, they didn't sell Nike for oh. a lot of reasons, but that's all right. Got it. <laughs> Maybe like, yeah, yeah. A6 Socrates Brooks, right? Brooks, like you go down yeah. the list, right? Like any really. Um, I, I just have to throw that out there, right? For sure. You know, I, I ran cross country and track back in the day. Yeah, I never wore a Nike shoe. Brooks. So, but, um, yeah, so they they would just take it. They'd take a shoe off the wall. The the customer would fit it. Like they wouldn't do any modifications in store, right? Like they would say, "Hey, if you want to, right? Like you can buy this shoe, pay full price for it, and then we've got this shoe cobbler that we know down the street that knows how to do it. We've worked with them. You can go down and do it." Mm-hmm. And and so I'm like, "How many pairs of these have you have you done so far?" He's like, "I don't know, a few hundred. <laughs> it's like a few hundred. Wow. Oh yeah, like we've had people come and do it." two or three times so far I was like are you kidding me like so people are totally into it like they're spending 100 to 130 dollars on a pair of shoes and then they're going down and spending 20 to 40 dollars to get them modified yeah yeah <laughs> seriously well is like are any of the shoe companies like not doing this type of thing no it's kind of against who they are like they've been doing the elevated heel cushioning story forever and i don't think they'll ever change <laughs> We've talked to a couple of them and they're just not interested in taking the concept and doing anything with it. So just seriously, well, let's start a shoe company. Then when he stopped laughing at me, I said, no, dude, I'm serious. Like, let's, <laughs> let's try this, right? Like, let's do it. Like, it sounds like, like there's at least a little bit of a market for it. Yeah. There's some interest, like biomechanically, it makes sense. So let's do it. And he says, whatever, Jeremy. We don't know how to show. We don't know the first thing about running a shoe company. 
said, I don't care. We'll figure it out. And so my cousin, my cousin Golden, he's like, he, he says, dude, whatever. Okay. You figure out how to at least get us to some manufacturing and I'll come help you. I said, okay. <laughs> so that's the last he thinks he's going to hear of it. Right. Like yeah. he's like, okay, I got this monkey off my back. This nothing's going to happen. Right. Like Jeremy's not going to figure this out. Like, no way. The shoe companies don't just pop up. They don't just start, right? Like Yeah. <laughs> like you look at you look at the biggest running shoe brands out there. Like Nike's been around since the 60s. Brooks has been around for 100 years. Saucony about as long. Asics about as long coming from Asia. Like these companies are tried and true, right? Like yeah. Audi Dossler was making shoes during world war two right like before that yeah um and so that's and that's where puma and adidas come from right so um so these these major shoe companies have long pedigrees right so so it's kind of like yeah right like this isn't gonna happen (laughs) so so this again right like social media is a powerful tool and i love it for the ability to connect right like that's how we connected for was sure. through linkedin and so so i jumped on a couple groups and i was like hey does anybody know anything about shoe manufacturing i kind of have an idea i'm toying with can anybody point me in any direction and and i got a response i was like this guy from portland he's like hey as a matter of fact like we help like I work with this company that that helps shoes concepts like come to reality. I'd love to hear what you're what you're looking at. So we started a little communication back and forth, and then he was like, "Hey, I'm going to be out in Utah for outdoor retailer here in a couple in a month. Why don't we get together?" So we show up in the lobby of the Marriott there across from the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City mm-hmm. during during outdoor retailer and. And my cousin pulls out a backpack full of these hacked up shoes <laughs> and we tell him the whole story and we kind of go through this and talk about the genesis of the idea and where it originates from. And, and he's like, wow, this is really interesting. Like you guys, I think you guys are onto something. Um, and he's like, you, let me talk to my team, see if there's some interest and then maybe we can have you come present it. So wow couple weeks go by and then we finally hear back from him. He's like, Hey, we'd love to, we'd love to take a look. Why don't, can you guys make it up here to Portland? So we, we jump in a car and we head up to Portland and take the road trip and obviously hit all the cool stuff on the way. We go hike South sister and then mm-hmm. we go through the gorge and then we play at Cannon beach, right? Like you got to do all the fun stuff when you're in your twenties and first real <laughs> company road trip. Right. For sure. So, um so we get there and we start we start meeting with these guys and we find out a lot more about who they are and one of them is former head of um nike university which is where they make all of their lasts and teach all of their last makers to make their shoes the last wow yeah is the form that the shoes built around um one of them was a former vp at adidas actually lived in germany had experience with um with Timberland and some of these others. Another one was a CAD designer that had worked for Adidas and Timberland. Um, so these guys really know what they're doing. Like yeah, there was huge. probably a hundred years of experience between the three 
primaries of this little company. And that's all they did was they like they they had contracts with some of these big companies, but they were they were contracted to take a shoe concept, a shoe idea, and and then bring it to a working prototype. And so so we started working with these guys. It was my first time I ever saw a 3D printer. <laughs> and and they 3D printed our first last for us. And we kind of got to watch that be built. And that was really cool. And then the other guy, Vlad, had a had a whole shoe factory essentially in his garage. The guy had stitchers and form molds and everything. Like he was like, Oh yeah, I could make you a whole shoe here. (laughs) (laughs) This Ukraine he's from Ukraine and the guy was a genius. Was this in Uh, Portland as well? Yeah, this was all in Port like around Portland. Um so they so um yeah, so they all just kind of worked from home. It was three primaries in this company and and they'd work from their houses. The one one would do the CAD design, one would do kind of the the last building and 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 then Vlad would kind of do everything. He was a rapid prototyper and last builder and all of that stuff. But, mm-hmm. Um yeah, these guys were amazing though. And and so we like and we sat down in a in a little boardroom and talked it out and and they're like, yeah, we like we'd love to be involved. We this excites us. We're we'd love to do like we'd love to to partner up with you guys and and help you bring this to fruition because we've wanted to do something similar to this forever. Wow. Um, Vlad, who was at Nike, was like, yeah, we would we would try to push stuff like this, but then they push back and say we can market it. It's not marketable. There's not air or cushion like mm. there's just not a marketable. And he's like, but, and then the biggest hurdle that we've run into these, what they'd run into in wanting to do something like this is we just don't have a marketing story, right? Like we don't know how, like, we don't know how we would build a brand around it. Yeah. You guys bring the story. And that's what we brought to the table was this, we brought the idea, the concept and, but we also brought just the story of it, right? Like three 20 year olds looking to start a brand, go up against the big beasts, one an all American, one an ultra runner. And then me, <laughs> um, but, but just with a desire to help people run better and, and improve their overall running. And so after that meeting, we were off to the races and then it was about, okay, how do we get it financed? How do we get this thing built? How do we market it? What do we do? And how do we tell the story? And then now um, gee, 12 years later, here we are ultra is a, global brand um, amazing. that has done some amazing things. And we were the foundation of that and built that. And so Brian Beckstead was the other one involved. So it was myself, Brian Beckstead and Golden Harper. And we, yeah, between the three, like we had a ton of fun starting this company style and building it up to, from a little, from a little, like the early concept in this kind of, this goes back to, how golden kind of came up with the idea the early concept goes back to to him wanting to try something a little bit different and eventually threw a threw a trail running shoe in his toaster oven that he had there to cook his totino's pizzas <laughs> and and just he heated it up like this was kind of a common thing in his house was to modify shoes like his dad was 
always drilling holes in soles and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out better way to get traction on a trail shoe or make a road shoe lighter and less impact and yeah all this stuff right so it's not like to the world it's like why would you stick a shoe in a toaster oven but to golden it was like why not (laughs) so this was like everyday stuff so so threw it in there so that it would heat up the glues right so and then he could peel off the outsole and then he just kind of scraped off away at the midsole until the midsole was gone and all he had left was an out rubber outsole and and an upper and then took some flat spenco foam um which is like basically a really nice insole foam double layered it cut it to fit the outsole and then glued it all together and that was his very first that was the very first prototype essentially wow and that's what we that's what he started with and then it came to well this is a really cool idea but is there another way to do it and then they looked at the Saucony Jazz which if if you google the Saucony Jazz you should still be able to see it this way but it's kind of got this two-tone two-layer midsole and and you kind of look at it and you see oh i can i can see exactly where it kind of rises at the heel and so why don't we just cut that little wedge out and so with a bandsaw and a shoe cobbler they worked to cut out that heel wedge and then it was like oh well, we could do this with other shoes and so it evolved from there right so yeah. it was those those two shoes were kind of the early stages of it but then it evolved from there, and and I wrote my very first pair of modified shoes were similar to what Golden had. It was two pieces of foam glued together with the upper and a and an outsole, and and that's what that's what set the stage for for my experience with it. And then I've I think I had three or four other pair done after that, and until I finally got our first prototypes, but. Awesome. So I'm curious, how many uh, models did you guys launch with from the start then? So we launched with one. So we launched, so this year is our 10 year anniversary. So actually two days from today. So today's March 26th. So on March 28th is when we received our first shoes into the warehouse. Wow. Congrats. Um, Yeah. So we're, yeah, we're right at the 10-year mark right now. Um, and and so that, and we launched with one one shoe, men and women. So we had the instinct for the men and the intuition for the women. Um, same as, well, not the same, same model, essentially, both a lightweight trainer. Um, however, we did build them specifically for the male foot and specifically for the female foot. So we didn't just shrink it and pink it. We didn't use the the same men's last and just shrink it down and call it a women's shoe. Yeah. Like we, we designed the women's shoe specifically for the woman's foot. Like we, we researched and studied the differences in the male and the female foot and we built it specifically for that. So, so we launched with that one shoe um, in March of 2011. Okay. And we, we air freighted or let's see, not, I think we fast boated our first shipment over. So we had, we split the shipment in half, I think. So we, we brought one, we brought half of it over fast boat and the other half slow boat from China. And, and the first, the first shipment sold out in like two weeks. 
And then, wow. and then our second shipment was probably another three weeks after that. And then we were without shoes for probably <laughs> almost two months, I think, from the other time that our next order showed up. Wow. But our goal, our goal was to launch with three styles. Um, we had three, we had three styles that we showed to all of our retailers prior to. Um, so our, our biggest, our flagship shoes were the instinct intuition for the road. And then we had the lone peak for the trail. Um, the Lone Peak is now in its 10th iteration. It just came out with Lone Peak version five. The reason that it's a version five is because we did things a little bit differently when we designed our shoes is we, we only updated the upper every year and then the outsole tooling every other year. Mm. And so, and so when we would update the upper, we would call it a 0.5 release. So we released the Lone Peak one and then we had the 1.5 and then we had the two and so forth. Um, so we're on Lone Peak 5, but it's actually the, essentially the 10th rendition of the Lone Peak. Got it. Um, but so the Lone Peak came out, oh, I don't remember my dates right now, but kind of mid to late summer, I believe it was, um, of 2011. So we went quite a while with just one shoe. And while you're in the thick of it, it feels like forever. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. And when we were without shoes, that felt like forever. <laughs> um, and you really stress about that as a young company is like, oh, we don't have the inventory. People are want it. But also there's a really cool story to tell with that too, is that, hey, there's a lot of demand for this product. Yeah. And it's okay to be out of stock. But when you're in the thick of it, it's not okay. You're like, we're losing money. We're not selling shoes. Like <laughs> yeah. what are we, people are going to forget who we are. People are going to come in and copy us. And, <laughs> and that was like, that was a huge concern was people were going to copy us and squelch us out of the market. Right. Like we were dealing, we're going up against these brands that are hundred years old. Right. Yeah. And, and they're going to see this and say, Oh, they're okay. There is a market for this. Okay. Let's just go ahead and let's, let's etch out a line and let's build it and let's just get rid of these guys. <laughs> and, and so that was like, that was a legitimate fear of ours. Yeah. And well, we're now 10 years into this and ultra continues to grow every single year. Um, and ultimately what two, three years ago was purchased by VF Corp and, and is yeah, wow. the future is big, right? Like yeah, that's the awesome. opportunity is big. The other, like the other kind of thing, I, the timing of it, I don't know. Like I still look back at it and try to figure out, okay, what's like, what was it that made, that made the, that time really unique because like 2008 to 2012 brought in three to four decent that are now kind of decent players two for sure right like ultra and hoka yeah um are both really really big players in the in the running shoe market right now um topo has gotten a little bit of foothold with tony post running that company um and then there's a couple more that we've kind of seen but not not big time right but but it's it's kind of interesting like like you look at hoko and hoka and ultra and then probably Topo as well. And they all seem to have some staying power. They're going to be around for a while. Mm -hmm. And whereas if you look back to the 30 years before that, like we've probably seen Montreal as maybe the only one really that popped up and kind of stuck around for a while. Yeah. 
I guess innovate a little bit, right? Like, but it's, but it was, it was really, it's really interesting to me to kind of look back at that time and see two big players come out of that period and, and be able to shake things up. And I think, I think one of the things that we can attribute that to was the rise of ultra running. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's probably a big place where we could say, okay, this is why people are pushing themselves. They're doing different things. They're, there's an interest in people going out and running a hundred miles in one day and, and doing this multiple times a year. (laughs) Right. Like, and, and it's just, it has become interesting and, and average people are going out and doing it. Right. And so I think with that, it was okay. If I'm going to rethink how far I'm pushing my body, then I'm also going to rethink what I'm putting on my feet. Yeah. And I don't want to just use, what I run my half marathon in. I want something different. Yeah. For and sure. so I think, I, I think that's probably a big player in it, but I, there's gotta be other things too. And I think social media has a big part in, to play in that as well. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Conversation and, is yeah. What was your marketing like with such a high demand, like just right off the start, your first two weeks, what were you doing for marketing? Was it mainly social media? Now? Well, so yeah, I, twofold. Um, yeah. Like I think back to when we started and I wonder if, if we could have done things a little more controlled and a little differently. And if we'd have been just strictly direct to consumer, um, but our, like our play, Brian and Golden both bro- grew up in retail. They both worked, worked running store retail mm-hmm. um, since the time, well, for Golden since he was nine. Right. And for Brian, <laughs> since he was 15. And so, so they both understood that market really, really well. Um, they understood what retailers wanted. They understood how to talk to retailers. They had been there themselves. They could relate really well. They weren't just some stiff executive yeah. trying to sell them a shoe brand, right? Like they, they totally understood that market. They could talk to it. And that's the other thing too. Like, and I think that plays huge, right? Like I was having a conversation with somebody on LinkedIn. We were talking about, we we're talking about, is it, how important is the founder in a company today? Right. And, and you look back and you think, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, but how many of us know who founded IBM or Xerox or like, if you really know your stuff, you probably know. Yeah. But if you go ask somebody on the street who founded Apple, you're probably going to get an answer. That's accurate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who, who founded Amazon? You might, you're most likely to get an accurate answer. Who founded Tesla, right? Like, like the, like founders are becoming rock stars now. Right. And, yeah. and this is a lot to do with the age of social media, but I also think it has to do a lot with the story that associates that as well. Right. Completely like agree. The Steve jobs, the Steve jobs story is super interesting to all of us. Right. Like the Jeff Bezos story is interesting. The Mark Zuckerberg story is interesting. And that was one of the big things is from early on, we wanted to tell our story and there's value in understanding the ultra story Contin- like still the ultra loyalists hinge on that ultra story. Mm. The people, the people that get it and understand it, understand that the real value in the brand is that it's not a stiff tightened up executive facing like executive run brand, right? Like it's yeah. runners that are passionate about building awesome product to help people run better. And that's, and that's the ethos and the genesis of Ultra. Mm-hmm. That's why we started. 
And so whether people know our names or not, they oftentimes will know the story and they can associate with the story. And there's a lot of value in, in having that story. And, and it goes back to a lot what Simon Sinek talks about, right? Like it starts with why. Yeah. And we knew what our why was. And, and I hope that going forward, and I put out my plea, not being associated directly with the brand, but I put out my plea that Ultra stays true to that story and doesn't lose it. Yeah. Um, and it's like, it's hard to watch certain things go. Like the term zero drop is not being used by the brand anymore. And it's just like, why, like, why? Like, yeah. that's part of the ethos. That's who the brand is. Like, don't try to turn the brand into another Brooks or Asics or whatever, like, let ultra be ultra. Um, cause that's where the real value is, is in that story. For sure. Um, so, so our marketing early on was just trying to get that story out. Like this was in the day when I could set up a Facebook page and I could, I could acquire an audience and I could talk to that audience and I didn't have to put a lot of money behind it. Right. Like yeah. I could do it organically. So the timing for that was really good. Also, there were a lot of running blogs at the time. Um, and there was a lot of interest in, and this goes back to the timing, right? Like Christopher McDougall uh, gets a lot of the credit, I think for, for the early days, cause he wrote born to run and born to run was a bestseller and it got people thinking like, okay, am I actually running right? Do I need to reconsider this? And, and people thinking about different footwear options and even testing with running in Vibram five fingers and, and some of those things, right? Like, so so it was just kind of carrying that story. We worked with bloggers. These were the early days of YouTube, like trying to get some groundswell organically. Like we didn't have a big budget, right? Like we yeah. weren't spending, we weren't out there spending money on AdWords and big print ads and all of this stuff, right? Like, so our early adoption was really tied to just this groundswell online. And, and we went, races was a big part for us as well. Um, just we get, we knew we got to get our name out there. Mm -hmm. So, so like we were at the Salt Lake city marathon, pretty much any race that happened in our backyard, we made sure we were there. Yeah. Um, and so like Utah certainly has a, had a real good acquisition of customers here, but also Brian and I, we, packed up his car, his Subaru. We loaded his top box with as many pairs of shoes as we could fit in there. And, and then we had shoes shipped to Boston and we, we showed up at the, at that Boston marathon in 2011. And we were literally two weeks old as a company, wow. <laughs> three weeks old or whatever it was. Um, so, <laughs> so it was, so races was big for us. Like we didn't sell a lot of shoes at that first Boston marathon, but I'll tell you when we went back the second year, we saw a lot of people that were like, Hey, I saw you guys here last year. Like I've been interested in checking these out. And, and so just that repeated, like as people start to see a brand, right. The more and more, and as a D to C brand, it's, it's easy to kind of get caught up in, oh, well, let's just focus on the ROAS and let's focus on driving business online and, and let's do this and that. But the more that you can get in front of the customer in a physical way, I think there's a lot of value to that and figuring out how to do that. Absolutely. Um, has a big opportunity, right? Whether it's, whether it's going the Johnny cupcakes route and go, go turn in a, go turn a, um, a food truck into a, t-shirt sales truck, right? Like yeah. whatever it is, like figure out those guerrilla tactics that get you out and in front of the customer. 
more than just trying to drive awareness through Facebook and Google AdWords and, and Instagram and those avenues, right? Like it's, it's tempting to just stay that route or, or to go and be like, okay, well, we're just going to launch on Kickstarter and that's what we're going to do. But getting in front of people physically has a lot of value. And I get it. Like the last year, that's been really hard for a lot of yeah, absolutely. to be able to do, right? Like, for sure. So, and it, and it is hard too. like, like that's a long-term play um too as well right because i i know a lot of races like that first year at boston right like we went we came away from that saying really do we do this again because we did not make our money back Mm -hmm. and and so the the roi was not there and so corporate partners were like hey what do you guys do like is this working but like it's it's just that continual touch point right and over the long term it pays out but we've become so conditioned in today's market to think if I, if I don't have an immediate attribution, if I don't have my one day or seven day or 28 day window, right? Like if I don't see that dollar come back and if I can't track it, then it's not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> but we lose out on so much opportunity um, because we, we don't look at the long play. We look at, we look at the short game, right? Again, going back to Simon Sinek, right? Like his recent book, The Infinite Game kind of plays off of that a lot that too much in business we're too focused on these arbitrary dates of quarterly earnings or to my point that immediate return on investment right yeah whereas you got to touch somebody at least seven times in most cases to get them to purchase like they're going to have seven touch points in most cases before they purchase your brand and and they can't all just be some image on facebook they have to be something different. So, totally. so we kind of understood that. So we were playing that world, but it, so, and then the other side of it was the retail side. So there's, there's three major retail events for running shoe companies. There's summer outdoor retailer, winter outdoor retailer, and then what's called the running event. And the running event is really, that's the big dog. Like that's where all most every run specialty store shows up to see what's new, what's coming, what's like, let's, this is a great opportunity to connect with our reps, also get some education, et cetera. So 2010, we felt like we had to figure out how we could fund it to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made it happen. And, and one of the things that, that they allowed with us being there, um, or they gave us a, an option was they have a, they have a shoe trial. Um, I can't remember what they called it exactly, but basically we could bring a size run of sample shoes and put them in this room and retailers could come and check them out and could take them for runs and stuff. So they had kind of this demo room. Mm-hmm. And, and so we were like, we're paying extra for that. Like we believe that if people put these on their feet, they're going to be sold. Yeah. So we paid for that and that paid for itself easily because we had, we were able to get the shoes on feet and retailers felt it and experienced it. That's amazing. And, and so that was like, that was huge for us. And then we also had reached out to some key retailers from around the country early on to kind of get their feedback on our shoes. Um, Kurt at Playmakers in, in Lansing, Michigan was one of those. And the guy was running around the trade show passing out our catalogs for us <laughs> like hey you guys got like he would go talk to all of his buddies and say hey you guys really got to go check out this ultra brand like they're brand new 
but go check them out, go talk to them, go see what they're about. And that, so at that event, we closed a lot of retailers, even if it was just, yeah, I'll bring in a size run and give it a try. Yeah. They were at least willing to, to give us a shot. That's amazing. Um, so, so on the retail side, it was huge for us to go in, to get into retail, but also then to educate the retail staff. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, we were big on seating shoes, getting shoes on feet of, of key retail staffers, helping them to tell our story um, and telling them our story to get them bought in. And so those, that was our two pronged marketing approach. And, and we kind of mimicked that for years. Um, we certainly expanded on the, on the, D2C consumer re- marketing side. Um, we had an opportunity early on to get into runner's world. Um, and, and that was, that was worth it. It was expensive. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> we put a full page ad in runner's world. Um, but, but that did two things for us. One, it got us into their, it got us, got our shoes into their testers hands. Um, so even though we were late at the game, we were able to get shoes on feet of testers and ultimately the, the instinct won a best debut award because of that. Hmm. Um, I'm not saying that we won the best debut award because we ran the ad, but we got our shoes into testers hands because we ran the ad, right? Like, yeah. it was like, Oh, okay. This brand is serious, right? Yeah. Let's, let's make sure that we test their shoes. Right. And and then the other thing that that did for us was that created a, an early relationship with Runner's World, and ultimately Ultra became the title sponsor. They came to us early to become the title sponsor of their half marathon huge. that they put on in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and, and so we were able to etch out that partnership early on, and that played really big for us. Um, so, yeah, so we continued to drive that, and amazing. Ultimately, grew a lot every year (laughs) that's huge so i like to conclude each episode with this you've shared so many great pointers so you've kind of answered this slightly but if you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur what would that be maybe something you've learned or regret just anything that's a loaded question how much longer do we have for this like an hour two hours like that's a loaded question it is right like um (laughs) there there's a lot, um, whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or you're just looking to build your own brand or, or you're even just looking to make your mark in the company that you're at or the company that you want to work for. Right. Like, like my, my biggest advice is understand why you're doing it and make sure that everything aligns with that. Why? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for what Simon Sinek talks about, right? Like I've already quoted him a couple of times here. Um, because I, I think that his stuff is super valuable for, doing what we do today. Um, it's, it's thinking beyond ourselves and what we can do for the greater whole. And as we focus on the greater whole, we're going to be a lot more successful because people buy in to what they believe and people believe in that, which helps them and others. And, and I think that that's such a valuable thing is understanding Mm -hmm. Like you, you don't have to go into, you don't have to go work for a company like a Tom's that's going to buy one, give one, or you don't have to go work for a nonprofit necessarily, right? Like those are all good things. And absolutely, if you feel inclined or, or impressed to go that direction, do it. 
Um, but you can be a computer programmer working for Facebook and know why you're doing it and have a greater why, right? Like, yeah. And you just understand what your why is and then, and stick to it. And, and you're going to be happier. You're going to be more successful and you'll be able to do some great things. So for sure. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me and to the listeners out there, make sure to check out ultra at ultrarunning.com. Hey, it's a pleasure, Cameron. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.